2: Did you know Banjo and Kazooie nearly starred in their own cartoon in May of 2015 It was revealed that there were plans for a Banjo Kazooie animated series on Twitter Artist Emilio Lopez gave some insight on the project and showed off concept art of the main duo along with mumbo-jumbo development on this series started in 2007 and was planned to coincide with the release of Banjo Kazooie Nuts and Bolts Lopez said Microsoft and rare were very lenient with the show's look the series didn't necessarily Necessarily have to look like the game and the art department was able to experiment with several designs with this look being the approved design look for the show Lopez also said that the basic outline was adventure themed and though the designs were 2d the show was likely to have been animated in 3d unfortunately for whatever reason the show never got off the ground development of the series was very similar to rare's viva pinata another Xbox franchise which also had a cartoon because of this it's possible the banjo cartoon would have aired alongside side Viva Pinata on the four kids TV Saturday morning block. There were other attempts at marketing that didn't pan out for nuts and bolts. During the game's development, Rare supposedly entered the Red Bull Flug Tag. This was an air show where competitors fly homemade man-powered flying machines and anyone can enter. They had an application pitched to the event, but according to Banjo designer Greg Males, the idea was rejected. One interesting fact about the first Banjo is that there's 116 Mumbo tokens to collect, but the player can only legitimately obtain 115. Two tokens in particular are found in Mad Monster Mansion, one hidden inside a breakable keg in the wine cellar, and the other found in the area underneath Lago the Toilet. These tokens were accidentally assigned the same bit in memory, and when one of them is picked up, the other simply vanishes into thin air. The Banjo games also have had some interesting regional changes. For example, Gruntilda is known for speaking in rhyme, but this was handled differently in the Japanese releases. It's a extremely easy to rhyme in Japanese, so easy that it happens by accident constantly. Because of this, Japanese poetry never adopted a rhyming style and favored things like haiku and tanka instead. Since Gruntilda's rhyming would be lost in translation, the Japanese localizers removed it and gave her some unique speech patterns instead. She was made to speak like an old Japanese woman, using a verbal tick at the end of a sentence. Occasionally, she also holds some of her vowels longer than normal, making for an unusual way of talking. Jam jars is the main Reimer and Banjo-Tooie, with his speech syncing up with the drill music. However, the Japanese game made no attempt to adapt this. He simply explains the moves out of sync with the drill music. After beating Grunty at the end of Banjo-Tooie, the main characters decide to kick her detached head around. However, this ending was altered in the Japanese release, with her head being concealed in a sack. This was likely changed to align with Japan's strict laws of dismemberment in media. In the Japanese version of Tooie on Xbox Live Arcade, the end cutscene plays out as it normally does in all other versions. When Banjo-Tooie was announced for Xbox Live Arcade, Rare said the game would be a note-perfect migration of the original. However, the game actually came with a number of glitches and oddities in the audio department. Certain enemy sound effects cut out early, and the theremin instrument lacks the vibrato it had in the original. This can be seen by comparing the sound when a jiggy appears in the N64 version compared to the Xbox Live version. The most evident music issues are in the cutscenes, notably the first scene in the game. The cutscenes used the lower frame rate of the original game to play music and specific stings in time with the events on screen. With the higher frame rate on Xbox, the music becomes out of sync and doesn't reach its end by the time the intro cutscene finishes. Banjo-Tooie boasts a large cast of characters, three of which had their names chosen by fans in the United Kingdom. In April 2000, issue 91 of the Nintendo Official Magazine, which later rebranded as Official Nintendo Magazine, held a contest on Rare's behalf. The contest let readers submit names for three characters, with the winners having their submissions used in the final game. They'd also win a free copy of Tooie and signed artwork from the Rare developers. These character names were Bully and Bill, chosen by Kyle Hudspeth, Chris P. Bacon by Simon Turk, and Jeremy Craggs named Old King Cole. This final name was actually submitted by several contestants, but Jeremy had his name drawn first. Interestingly, this contest also claimed Tooie would be out later in 2000. While the game came out in November of 2000 in America, Tooie wasn't released in the UK until April 12, 2001, just one day before Conqueror's Bad Fur Day also released in the UK. Speaking of names, Banjo and Kazumi's have some interesting roots. According to game journalist Andy Robinson, a collaborator with Rare alum and writer for Nintendo Official Magazine, Banjo and Kazooie allegedly got their names from real-world figures. During a trip to Japan, Robinson learned the duo's names came from relatives of Hiroshi Yamauchi, who served as Nintendo's president during the release of Banjo 1 and 2. Kazooie is apparently named after his son, Kasui with Banjo sharing the name with his grandson. However, this conflicts with a different story that's says the duo got their names from the instruments they play. When a Twitter user asked Greg and Steve Males if the Yamauchi story was true, Greg Males responded by saying it was indeed the case for Banjo, though he was unsure about Kazooie. Robinson had said if anyone knew about this for sure, it would be Rare Founders Tim and Chris Stamper. The series is well known for its use of innuendos and occasional adult humor, with one instance being quite infamous among fans. In Banjo-Tooie's Pterodactyl Land, the rock formation leading to Mumbo's Hut has been labeled as overly phallic by fans. So much so that they believed its shape isn't a coincidence. It's been disputed whether it was meant to be intentional or not. But in 2015, the truth finally came out. During the announcement window of Ukulele, Platonic Games sat down with former rare environmental artist Stephen Hurst. They spoke to Hurst about the process of creating a game world, with Hurst citing how fun it was to add extras and secrets to a world's layout. Platonic inevitably asked about the supposed phallus in Pterodactyl Land. Hurst sheepishly admitted to it, but at the same time, try blaming Greg Males for it. Hurst said, I'm assuming you're referring to the infamous landmass in Banjo-Tooie's pterodactyl land? I lay the blame for that one on the feet of the designer. I can honestly say I've never knowingly inserted a phallus anywhere where it didn't belong. There's another lewd secret hidden within the game. Often in game development, the file names of assets only loosely match up with that they're named in the final game. In the case of Banjo-Kazooie and Tooie, the animations for Kazooie firing eggs Forwards and backwards are named Egghead and Eggass, respectively. It's a topic that hasn't been officially recognized for nearly two decades, but the worlds of Banjo-Kazooie and Donkey Kong are in fact connected. This is partly due to Diddy Kong Racing, which marked the debut of several characters who would later appear in series of their own. Banjo was planned to come out before Diddy Kong Racing prior to being delayed, with the characters officially debuting in a Donkey Kong game instead. Diddy Kong Racing's instruction manual also mentions Kazooie by name in Banjo's profile, saying the adventure took place before, before the two paired together. The manual also states that when trouble struck on Timbers Island, Diddy got the word out to Banjo and friends by using Squawks the Parrot as a carrier pigeon. As a side note, Conker was said to have made friends with Diddy on one of his adventures with Donkey Kong and joined Banjo on his way to help Diddy out. The universe connecting these worlds together was split after Rare and Nintendo parted ways in 2002 until it was finally reconnected in 2019 when Banjo and Kazooie made their way into Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. The duos include was a joint effort between Rare and the Smash team, having been in the works since 2018. The look of the duo was attributed to Rare artist Paul Cunningham, who started at Rare in 1995, with one of his first games fittingly being Diddy Kong Racing. It might go without saying, but the Baron Bird had been requested in Smash Bros. ever since the original game. We previously mentioned that there were plans for Rare-based trophies in Super Smash Bros. Melee. And according to a 2002 interview with Nintendo Dream, Sakurai confirmed one of those trophies was going to B of Banjo and Kazooie. The reason they did not make the final cut wasn't due to an impending Microsoft buyout, but rather because Rare was based in the UK, and communications between the two teams while still having Melee out on time proved to be difficult. At the time, Sakurai also said adding a Rare character to Smash seemed like a no-brainer, but deemed it unlikely due to a number of legal reasons. In the years leading up to their eventual inclusion, Microsoft were more than open to the idea of having the bear and bird appear in Smash Brothers. Xbox head Phil Spencer said in 2015 that when working with Nintendo with Rare IP, they've had no issues whatsoever. When the deal eventually came out, Microsoft had several of their titles already appear on Nintendo consoles, like the Nintendo 3DS and Nintendo Switch, which likely smoothed things over. In an interview with Gotaku, Phil Spencer even said, I think it's cool that Banjo is going to be in Smash. Banjo's inclusion comes with a number of firsts. Though not the first Western-designed characters, Banjo and Kazooie are the first set of fighter to hail from a non-Japanese series. They're also the first third-party characters to have once been second party, and the first to be owned by a direct competitor of Nintendo. They're also currently the only DLC fighters without a game of their own on the Switch. And during their presentation, Sakurai urged fans to give the games a try on Xbox One. The new Spiral Mountain Remix was provided by original Banjo-Kazooie composer Grant Kirkhope, marking the first time Sakurai worked with a musician outside of Japan. Was a bit worried about communication, but he assured Kirkhope did an amazing job. After the Banjo Kazooie DLC was released for Smash Ultimate, the duo's original designer, Steve Males, expressed some desire to have the N64 games remade. Males told VGC, Could the reaction of fans to Banjo and Kazooie in Smash persuade Microsoft to make another Banjo game? The revival of Spyro and Crash went pretty well after all. I think a fairly safe way to gauge demand for a new game would be to remaster the original two games. Then if the interest is there, perhaps we could see Banjo return in the new no-expense spared game he and Kazooie deserve. Here's a real
3: high-class
4: begin. Did you know? Brothers and Cuphead creators Chad and Jared Moldenhauer always had the idea of making a game of their own, though they lacked the resources to do so for many years. After seeing the success of the indie scene in 2010, especially with games like Super Meat Boy and Castle Crashers, the two realized it was possible for them to make a quality game, and development on Cuphead entered its early stages soon after. From the start, the gameplay was inspired by run and gun games like Contra and Gunstar Heroes, but the game's eventual look was rooted in 1930s cartoons, notably from from the works of Fleischer Studios. The brothers grew up watching cartoons from the era through VHS tapes they got themselves or as gifts. The duo figured that as technology improved, someone would make a game in that style, but no one attempted it to the degree they hoped for. The idea of 1930s visuals actually began as a joke they'd shoot around in brainstorming sessions. Thinking they'd be unable to pull the look off successfully, they dabbled in other styles but always came back to that idea. Despite their lack of training, it was something that resonated with them and they dove right into it. When thinking of designs for the game's protagonist, there had been hundreds of ideas drawn up, but nothing was working for them at first. They wanted to steer clear of animals due to how common they were in platformers, opting for something they could call their own. A lightbulb character fittingly led to the idea of more inanimate objects for heads, and led to them being more experimental with their designs. Near the end of the process, Chad would study background elements in cartoons for anything he could find, and over time, they came to the design we now know. The design's also said to have roots in a 30s Japanese propaganda film that featured a man with a teacup head. Some of the scrapped ideas showed up in the final game as NPCs such as the Axe and Applehead designs, and Mugman's character came from the desire of a two-player dynamic. Being the younger brother, Jared said he always identified as Luigi, and they wanted to give off a Mario Brothers vibe with the duo. The game started out simple, and was planned to have eight bosses in a similar structure to the Mega Man series. However, with its popularity at trade shows, the two felt the need to expand the game to feature more content, what they originally envisioned before scaling back. It resulted in the team and development time increasing, but they were still set on seeing it to the end. The game's animation process was said to slow down production by 80% when compared to doing it digitally. They stuck with it because they wanted to be as true to the art style as they could, and to help keep traditional animation alive. It was even considered to color everything by hand, but it only would have gone to add years to production time. The style lent itself to the gameplay due to the wild, eccentric nature of 30's cartoons, leading to near endless possibilities for boss ideas. That said, before coming up with a boss, they needed to know how it'd play out in advance. Depending on its size or location, they designed it with that in mind, coupled with the theme of where they'd appear in the game. There was one idea where a boss would be fought on a sheet of music with the patterns relying on the level's actual soundtrack. This idea didn't get off the ground as the pattern couldn't be changed once implemented, plus the track had to be different for each of the game's difficulty settings. Despite the pushbacks in the four years since its first announcement, the game proved popular through it all, selling over one million copies in its first two weeks. The studio took many chances throughout development, but took things in small steps before getting to the game's current scope. Jared has said that had they known just how much work would go into Cuphead from the start, they likely never would've made it. Cuphead's development was an intimate affair. Spouses, cousins, and friends of the brothers lent their talents to help bring it to life, being as passionate as they were about the project and gaming as well. The game's composer Chris Madigan was a friend of the brothers since childhood and was their go-to guy, knowing he could deliver on the soundtrack they needed. That said, the game was also a first for Madigan. Though he had studied jazz, he didn't consider it his strong suit on top of doing little actual composing beforehand. Game tracks often loop at a point in their songs, but for Cuphead, Madigan wanted each piece to be as long as it needed to be, even if the player wouldn't hear the full piece in-game. Though there were limitations to how the music could interact with the action on-screen, a staple of classic cartoons, Madigan instead went for the vibe of excitement and unpredictability, complementing the game's nature. Each piece also has several different mixes and solos. When one was recorded, they'd have soloists play over the finished piece, with a variety of instruments and improvised segments. Because of this, when fighting the same boss again, a slight variation on their theme can be heard. There are a few nods to other video games in Cuphead's score. The Funfair Fever track has a similar segment to the athletic theme from Super Mario World. This bit, according to Madigan, was a crazy coincidence. If I did it on purpose, I would totally own it. But it's actually a fairly standard ragtime cliche in some ways. When Koji Kondo used it, it was already old. For a game that's full of homages, that was a total accident. The Mario series helped influence another track more directly. The Elder Kettles theme was initially made for a possible water world that was cut from the final product. Madigan looked to Koji Kondo's method of scoring for water levels in the Mario Brothers soundtrack 33 and a 3rd book, noting that many are based on waltz notes. Numbers. Coincidentally, a master class he attended was covering how to write waltzes, and he saw it fitting to make one. There are dozens of references to games and animation sprinkled throughout Cuphead, with the team wanting them to act more as subtle nods than direct shoutouts. Goopy Legrand's look was inspired by early RPGs where enemies were commonly slime creatures, and was in Cuphead before their own boss formula. The third phase of Dramatic Fanatic is another nod to JRPGs, with Sally Stageplay's cutout bearing a striking resemblance to Kepka from Final Fantasy VI. Grim Matchstick has roots in Mega Man 2's Mecha Dragon Boss, and his name references animator Grim Natwick who worked on many Fleischer cartoons and, like Matchstick, spoke with a pronounced stutter. Dr. Call shares his surname with one of Disney's nine old men, Milk Call, and the level Perilous Pier shows a building named Hotel Iwerks, referencing animator and co-creator of Mickey Mouse, Ub Iwerks. Baroness Von Bonbon has design roots in not only cartoons, but also in actresses from the era, such as Biddy Greybo, B.B. Daniels, and Loretta Young. The Railroad Wrath bosses all have ties to Japanese yokai. The Ghost with Tanome, a ghost with eyes on their hands, the skeleton with Gashadokuro, a giant skeleton, the train pistons possibly with long neck yokai such as Rokuro Kubi, and the head of the train with Oboruguruma, ox carts with faces that appear in the dead of night. The stage also draws parallels with Final Fantasy VI's Phantom Train, as both have the player make their way through a haunted train before fighting the train itself. The level Clip Joint Calamity is one huge shout out to the Street Fighter series. Ribby and Croak start the fight with Ryu and Ken's taunts, and their moves reference other fighters. From Honda's Hundred. Hand Slap, Guile's Sonic Boom, Dalsim's Yoga Fire, and even Blanca's Roll. Their slot machine phase references the Street Fighter II bosses, with U.S. Balrog depicted by the machine itself, and Vega, Sagat, and M. Bison by the slot patterns, as it shows snakes, tigers, and bulls, respectively. Lastly, when the player dies to the devil in his second phase, his death quote will be, Anyone who opposes me will be destroyed, which is directly lifted from M. Bison's Game Over quote in Street Fighter II.
5: Did you know? Rayman has no arms or legs because, during development, programmers had trouble rendering his limbs while the character was in action. The design, with Rayman's hands and feet floating separately from his body, led to the discovery of unique gameplay elements, like the ability to punch enemies from a distance. Rayman was created by Michael Ancel in Montpellier, France. Ancel started developing Rayman for the Super Nintendo with a team of two. It was originally a co-op platformer with two playable Rayman-type characters. As the staff grew, development shifted to focus on CD-ROM-based consoles for their larger storage capacity. capacity, and then professional cartoonists were hired to rework the game's graphics and artwork. Rayman's personality as an adventurer with a sense of humour was inspired by Indiana Jones. The designs of the scenery in the levels and worlds were influenced from Celtic, Russian and Chinese fairy tales, while the designs of the characters were inspired by the golden age American animation of Tex Avery. According to an interview in the French magazine Love, Ansel took the name Rayman from ray tracing software that he used in the Ubisoft studio during the development of the original game. Like the original Rayman, Rayman began development as a 2D platformer. New enemy and ally encounters were created using pre-rendered graphics similar to Donkey Kong Country, and Rayman was going to be able to mount a Tyrannosaurus Rex. The PlayStation release of Rayman 2, The Great Escape, contains a hidden bonus level that is thought to be an early build of the game. At some point though, the Ubisoft development team decided to turn Rayman 2 into a 3D platformer, but there was a problem. Ubisoft had never developed a game like that before. Popular 3D platformers like Super Mario 64 and Crash Bandicoot had already hit the market, and standards for the genre were high. Ansel and the team decided to take a break from Rayman 2 and began working on a side project. This new game was called Tonic Trouble and it was created to test the engine for the upcoming 3D Rayman game. It also provided an opportunity for the developers to learn the ropes of 3D game development. Tonic Trouble has a few scattered references to Rayman, like the cave painting in the first level and a brief cameo during the credits. Rayman Arena has a reference to Tonic Trouble in a cutscene, where the skeleton of Ed is seen shackled in the background. Ed's face can also be seen in an episode of the Rayman animated series. The Nintendo 64, Dreamcast and PC versions of Rayman 2 contain a total of 1,000 yellow lums. After a cutscene where Razorbeard eats a yellow lum, the heads-up display for lums changes from 1,000 to 999. However, fans later discovered a hidden yellow lum in the Tomb of the Ancients level that exists even after the player recovered 999 out of 999 yellow lums, bringing the total back up to 1,000. The PlayStation version of Rayman 2 only contains 800 yellow lums and the lum that Razorbeard eats in the cutscene is changed to a red lump. There are many different versions of Rayman 2, and each one has unique differences. The Japanese version changed Rayman's torso from purple to blue. This is because in Japanese culture, purple is seen as the colour for death, often used by villains. It is likely that the change was to assert Rayman as the game's hero. Other characters went through design changes as well. Sam the Water Snake was changed from purple to green, Jano's hat was changed to red, and Lee the Fairy's design was changed completely. There are differences between versions of Rayman 3 as well. The PlayStation 2 release has different music for the fight with Bagonia. X. Rayman 3 has a hidden reference to Star Trek during the first Sea highway level. Near the O in the word Love in the background, a silhouette of the Starship Enterprise can be seen partially obscured by the heads-up display. One secret room in the Headlum headquarters contains statues of Razorbeard and his minions from Rayman 2, sitting in the style of The Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. Dialogue in Rayman 3 frequently breaks the fourth wall.
6: Ever played a video game before? Fuck off, fairy!
7: Zelda did you get You were nicer in Rayman
4: 2. See you in Rayman
5: 4! What's interesting about that last one is that a game called Rayman 4 was never released, but there really was a Rayman 4 in development. It was being produced by Phoenix Interactive Entertainment, and some concept art reveals that it would have had costume transformations like Rayman 3. In 2012, more concept art made its way online, revealing that this game was going to return many of the locations from the first Rayman, like Bandland and Picture City. A different take on a sequel to Rayman 3 emerged in the form of a trailer at E3 2006. It depicted Rayman changing costumes and fighting a swarm of rabbits, in the style of a beat-em-up, like Dynasty Warriors. Still images released online show Rayman riding several types of animals trying to escape the army of rabbits. This game, of course, became the minigame collection Rayman Raving Rabbit, but it's interesting that the game originally started as a 3D platformer. Some other Ubisoft games have references to Rayman in them. Prince of Persia Warrior Within has Rayman's glove as an equippable weapon. It's indestructible and will knock down enemies when thrown at them. Rayman's popularity reached outside of gaming when it was announced that Rayman would be the mascot of the French Federation of Football for the 2014
6: When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.
0: What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate?
5: Did you know? Over the course of The Simpsons 28 seasons, the show has lent its name to even more games. The first Simpsons game, Bart Vs. The Space Mutants, was released in 1991 and closely resembles the plot of John Carpenter's 1988 film They Live. In the film, professional wrestler Rowdy Roddy Piper finds sunglasses that allow him to see aliens disguised as humans. Similar to They Live, Bart finds X-ray specs that reveal aliens disguised as humans. And just like in the film, Bart has to convince everyone that aliens exist. The game was released on many different platforms, the NES, Atari ST, Sega Master System, and the Amiga. From July 1991 to September 1992, various Amiga bundles came with the cartoon classics, which included Bar vs. The Space Mutants. For the Amiga version of the game, ARC developments wanted to make a new intro that better reflected the show's animation. Although each frame was sent to and edited by Simpsons creator Matt Groening, the animation still looked mediocre compared to the show. Another early entry was the Simpsons arcade game, developed by Konami and tested by Konami of America near Chicago. Following the success of the 1989 Ninja Turtles arcade game, Konami took the Turtles beat-em-up gameplay and applied it to The Simpsons. While there's plenty of familiar content in the game, fans noticed some stark difference from the show. While The Simpsons family sounded like they did on TV, Mr. Burns and Smithers sounded nothing like their characters. This is because Harry Shearer, who voiced over 20 characters including Burns and Smithers, didn't voice any of the game's characters. This is most noticeable during the final boss fight.
4: Welcome to your grave!
5: Similarly, fans noticed a lack of another prominent voice, Hank Azaria. Azaria's absence meant that characters such as Moe and Otto were uncharacteristically quiet throughout the game. It's unknown whether their omission was due to availability, budget, or technical constraints. A gag that Konami included in the game were rabbits from Groening's first successful publication, Life in Hell. Published from 1977 to 2012, the comic strip involved anthropomorphic rabbits covering a wide range of themes. While some of the rabbits in the arcade games are enemies, there's another nod to the comic. is electrocuted, her skeletal silhouette has a pair of rabbit ears. According to Groening, he originally planned for Marge's hair to conceal a pair of large Life in Hell-esque rabbit ears. The ears were set to be revealed in Season 1's finale, but Groening decided to scrap the idea. Another interesting detail is that the Japanese game was notably easier than the international version. The usage of weapons was tweaked and the player's health could go past 100%. Even more surprising is the inclusion of arbitrarily placed atomic bombs, which only appear in the Japanese game. In February of 2012, both Xbox Live and PlayStation Network re-released the Simpsons arcade game. Unfortunately, the title was ultimately removed from both console stores and has not returned. In the early 90s, Bart's Nightmare was published on the Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis to a lukewarm reception. The game's designer, Bill Williams, was a celebrated developer with several acclaimed titles under his belt. Williams suffered from cystic fibrosis and spent much of his time thinking of new ways to experience games. Although he started making out experimental indie games, Williams would eventually take an office job making License games and sculptured software. While working on Bart's nightmare, Bill would constantly have to rework the game so it fit executive demands. These orders came from the management of his studio, The Simpsons license holders, and even Nintendo. Unhappy with the corporate environment of the industry, Williams walked away from the project when it was nearly completed. He quit the game industry and enrolled in the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. His goal was to become a pastor, help people, and gain a stronger connection with the world. Sadly though, Williams passed away at the age of 37 due to his condition. The show itself is well known for parodying pop culture, and this is true for the Simpsons games as well. One of the series' lesser known games, Virtual Springfield, has a secret minigame within the Quickie Mart. As a poo, the player must fight hoodlums using a broom, a shotgun, and an overpowered weapon. With its gibbs and presentation, the minigame is an obvious parody of Doom. Some of the games also reference movies. Krusty's Funhouse, for instance, has a password system, with most passwords being the names of Simpsons characters. In the title Super Nintendo version, however, one of the passwords is Joshua a reference to the Cold War hacking movie War Games. These parodies and references were taken to a new level in the 2000s, In 2005, EA acquired exclusive rights for The Simpsons license. The license acquisition was significant, as it was the first time Fox ever agreed to a long-term exclusive Simpsons game deal. The Simpsons has always been known for its jabs at pop culture, but the new partnership gave rise to a plethora of possible game references. In an interview with Game Almighty, lead designer Greg Rizza stated that he was excited to parody and poke fun at the industry. Unfortunately, not all game developers approved of their properties being parodied, though. During the 2007 Games Convention in Leipzig, Rockstar wasn't happy with Grand Theft Scratchy posters being displayed while they showed off Grand Theft Auto 4. Rockstar ultimately asked EA to pull the posters down. In an interview with CVG, Riza commented, I was always under the impression that when you do a parody, it's a sign of respect. If we make fun of Grand Theft Auto, we're not doing it to hurt the sales of Grand Theft Auto. We've definitely had some reactions. We've had to pull stuff from the game. However, other companies like Harmonix and Capcom embraced parodies such as Sitar Hero and Mega Mole Man X. The Developers used regular Simpsons show writers Tim Long, Matt Selman, and Matt Warburton to create over 8,000 lines of dialogue for the game. Rizzo referred to The Simpsons game as the first playable season of The Simpsons. While the game was the best received in the franchise, things took a sharp turn when EA released The Simpsons Tapped Out. Shortly after the title was released, it was pulled from the iOS app store due to several problems. This included issues connecting to the servers, excessive bugs, and missing in-app purchases. As a freemium game, Tapped Out received criticism for its exploitative revenue structure and lack of gameplay. The phenomenon of freemium games led to them being mocked in a 2014 episode of South Park entitled Freemium Isn't Free, where the show's Terrence and Philip app bears an uncanny resemblance to the layout of Tapped Out. The episode reveals the cycle of enticing players to spend real money to buy in-game currency in order to avoid waiting.
3: Did you know? While Ape Escape is well known as the first PlayStation game to require the DualShock Analog Controller, it didn't actually start development that way. Creative producer Susumu Takasuka stated in a promotional interview, Just as we began development on design and concept of this game, we were invited to attend a development meeting for the DualShock Analog Controller. We were excited to see prototypes with two analog sticks. There weren't any games that existed at the time that used both sticks, and we were so intrigued by the new opportunities. The idea just kept coming. The unconventional control scheme was the result of over two years of development. Executive producer Shuhei Yoshida stated that designing the controls was the biggest challenge. The game required an extensive amount of playtesting, and after all the changes, he was surprised to see how much of the original concept the team was able to retain. Shuhei Yoshida has been involved in many high-profile PlayStation games, including Gran Turismo, Parappa the Rapper, Crash Bandicoot, and God of War. During a Q&A at EGX 2015, Yoshida Shida stated that Ape Escape was his favorite game to work on in terms of hands-on development. The iconic soundtrack of the game was composed by DJ and electronic music artist Soichi Terada. Ape Escape director Masamichi Seke was inspired by Torada's track Sumo Jungle and asked Terada to create the background music for the game. Tirada's style of music was uncommon in Japan at the time due to a ban on dancing that was enacted after World War II. So Ichi developed his musical taste DJing in small clubs in odd locations where the music was played quietly and stopped at midnight. Tirada stated that he does not change his style when composing music for video games as opposed to composing music to release under his own label, Far East Recordings. Ape Escape's game data contains some unused assets that were likely from early builds of the game. These assets are animated sprites for the cookies and t-shirt items, both of which are 3D models in the final version. The cookie graphic has the word kokeru on the front, which is the original Japanese name for spike. The t-shirt has a different appearance than the final version, with horizontal stripes rather than a single vertical stripe, possibly indicating an earlier character design for the protagonist. Fans and speedrunners have also discovered some unused behavior relating to the passing cars in the TV Tower level. Using an infinite jump glitch with the slingshot item makes it possible to pass the barriers at the beginning of the level. If the usually unreachable cars beyond the barrier hit Spike, they kill him instantly. It's also possible to ride on the moving vehicles. The European version of Ape Escape has unique anti-piracy measures that prevent pirated copies from moving past the main menu. Unfortunately, Unfortunately, this means that European gamers are unable to play the PlayStation 1 disc on a PlayStation 3, as the software emulation sets off the anti-piracy checks. A wide range of references to pop culture and other video games can be found among the Ape Escape series. In the North American version of the first Ape Escape, the level Dark Ruins contains four monkeys with peculiar names. Stan, Kyle, Kenny, and Crapman, a reference to the four main characters from South Park. Two different enemies from Ape Escape 2 were taken straight from the Japanese-exclusive PlayStation 2 game, Space Fisherman. One of the morph power-ups in Ape Escape 3 references another TV show. The Cyber Ace Morph is based on Japanese Super Sentai Heroes, otherwise known in North America as Power Rangers. In the European translation of Ape Escape 3, the morph is called Gatchaman, a reference to the Sentai anime Kagaku Ninja Tie, gotcha man. In Ape Escape 3, a minigame can be unlocked that references Metal Gear Solid called Messel Gear Solid, a portmanteau of Metal and Saru, the Japanese word for monkey, and a reference to Ape Escape's Japanese title, Saru Get You. The minigame features a peepo monkey based on Snake that uses a banana gun. The monkey's mission is to rescue Snake, who is found at the end being tortured by a peepo monkey. Metal Gear Solid 3 returned the reference with a mini-game called Snake vs. Monkey. The game features Snake on a mission to rescue the same monkeys from Ape Escape. In the communication with the Colonel, Snake states, If you want your monkeys, you better ask Kakeru or Hikaru. Kakeru and Hikaru, of course, are references to the Japanese names for Spike from Ape Escape and Jimmy from Ape Escape 2. The Colonel also reveals that the Professor from Ape Escape worked with Otakon on his inventions. Snake must then go through several stages capturing peepo monkeys, and he even has a victory dance at the end of a round. Other video games have references to Ape Escape as well. The disc-swapping game Monster Rancher 4 contains several versions of the peepo monkeys from Ape Escape. These monsters are obtained by inserting inserting. inserting copies of Ape Escape during Monster Rancher gameplay. The PlayStation-exclusive Hot Shots Golf 4 contains a few unlockable PlayStation characters, one of which is a peepo monkey who can be used as a caddy in the Japanese and European versions of the game. Ratchet and Clank Up Your Arsenal also contains a reference to Ape Escape. In the Japanese version of the game, entering a secret code unlocks a peepo monkey costume for Ratchet. Several PlayStation games have also released DLC referencing Ape Escape. Little Big Planet 1, 2, and Karting features a monkey DLC costume for Sackboy. The survival game Tokyo Jungle also has DLC of a peak point helmet for the chimpanzees in the game. Over the years, the Ape Escape series has been adapted into three different animated series and 13 games including spin-offs. Of these games, only seven saw a North American release and eight were released in the PAL regions. In 2006, fan communities reacted to an ad placed in Famitsu Magazine looking to hire a team for the new Ape Escape game. The ad indicated that the game was the fourth entry in the main series of games. Nothing was heard of the project after, but several spin-off games came along following the ad. Sony potentially teased a fourth game 10 years later in 2016, but no official announcement was made. At the beginning of the year, the PlayStation's official Japanese Twitter account posted an image of a peepo monkey and stated, 2016, Year of the Monkey. Today, Sony Computer Entertainment will begin working. Hashtag monkey, hashtag year of the monkey. Unfortunately, no Ape Escape games were actually released in 2016. Did you know,
7: there was potentially going to be a third Prince of Persia game directed by the series creator, Jordan Mechner. The ending of Prince of Persia 2, The Shadow and the Flame hints at a new villain who watched the Prince's progress through a crystal ball. However, after the development of Mechner's next game, The Last Express, Prince of Persia publisher Broderbund was acquired by The Learning Company. A new sequel began development, but with Mechner taking a less involved role as a consultant to the infamously and critically panned Prince of Persia 3D, and the new villain hinted at during the cliffhanger of Shadow and the Flame was never referenced again. The original Prince of Persia released in 1989 on the Apple II and wowed players with its smooth rotoscoped animation. This was achieved by Mechner filming his brother doing acrobatic maneuvers outdoors in white clothing. He would then use the footage as a reference to create the game's various jumping, running, and fighting animations. Mechner also used some of his favorite movies as a visual reference, such as 1938, the Adventures of Robin Hood. Despite the game being a tremendous amount of work for a one-man team, Mechner wanted the original package to be more ambitious and laments cutting out a full level editor. In an interview with Retro Gamer, Mechner said, "Part of my original plan for Prince of Persia was to include the level editor on the disc, so players could create their own Prince of Persia levels, as Broderbun had done with Loadrunner just a few years earlier. I spent months creating a fully featured, user-friendly level editor, but in the end, the only only person who got to enjoy using it was me. While the sprite design of the Prince purposely kept his appearance simple, the various home ports of the original Prince of Persia changed his look significantly. This was because the ports were made by different developers from different cultures, several of which were Japanese teams. Most notably, the PC Engine port added a turban and a more Aladdin-like vest to his design, a choice that Mechner liked, as the design was adopted for Prince of Persia 2. The other Japanese-developed ports of Prince of Persia achieved a plethora of additional content, gameplay tweaks, and some questionable creative decisions. While the Sega Genesis port is mostly a faithful adaptation, the Super Nintendo version contains several more levels, an increased time limit, and completely redrawn graphics and cutscenes. One of Prince of Persia's more unusual ports is the Sega CD version, which included animated cutscenes and even voice acting. Ubisoft would ultimately acquire the rights to Prince of Persia and reboot the franchise with the critically acclaimed Sands of Time. Although Sands of Time is very robust, many of its ideas were left on the cutting room floor. The game has a level revolving around a private zoo crawling with sand creatures, but oddly, the only animals that appear are vultures and beetles. According to producer Yanis Malat in a Gamma Sutra post-mortem article, this section of the game was planned to have enemies such as sand tigers and other mythical creatures. However, these more complicated beast-like enemies would have been too cost-inefficient to implement and had to be cut before release. Much of the core team that worked on Sands of Time had extensive backgrounds working on titles for a younger audience, and according to director Patrice DiSole, this inspired one of the game's most famous mechanics. While working on Donald Duck going quackers, Patrice proposed that instead of having to replay an entire level once the player dies, they should be able to rewind time and resume the game just before death. This idea was dismissed at the time, but once Patrice was promoted to a director, this was one of the early gameplay hooks for Prince of Persia that evolved into the central mechanic of Sands of Time, and has become synonymous with the franchise ever since. While the third game in New trilogy would be released in 2005 as Prince of Persia The Two Thrones, there was actually an early prototype shown at E3 of the same year known as Kindred Blades, or simply, Prince of Persia 3. While it shared some elements with Thrones, had a variety of differences, including a less linear city to explore, more blood and gore, and various other changes. Most notably, both the prince and his evil doppelganger had different designs than what would appear in the final game, with the dark prince featuring striking white hair. The transformation process between the two forms was different as well, with the prince having to burn himself with fire, with the pain acting as a trigger into his more powerful alter ego. After finishing The Sands of Time, Patrice de Soleil wanted to take the franchise in a different direction. He then instead pitched a concept called Prince of Persia Assassins. This game would have seen the player assume the role of a member of the Prince's entourage instead of the Prince himself, with a backstory rooted in a real world group called the Hashashins. Ubisoft rejected this idea because it was a little too different from the Prince of Persia formula. But they did see potential in the pitch however, and moved Patrice to his own team. This idea spun off into its own IP for next generation hardware called Assassin's Creed. The Prince of Persia franchise has fallen victim to various information and media leaks over the years. One notable instance was Prince of Persia Zero having a multitude of character art leaked at the start of 2008, which lessened the impact of its reveal four months later. Then in 2012, a screenshot appeared on Ubisoft's forums labeled Pop Zero Two, which appeared to hint at a new unannounced sequel taking place in ancient Egypt. This was later discovered to be another project altogether called Osiris, which never had an official announcement before it was quietly cancelled. Although that project was put aside, Ubisoft did return to an ancient Egyptian setting with Assassin's Creed Origins five years later. Then in 2013, screenshots for another project labeled Character Action Platformer 2013 appeared on the website for developer Climax Studios. Due to the aesthetic of the title, many speculated that the game was a new installment in the Prince of Persia franchise. Climax Studio CEO Simon Garner quickly responded to the spec speculation, explaining that the screenshots were indeed from a prototype they made for Ubisoft, but this never really went any further. Gardner never mentioned Prince of Persia by name. Interestingly, Climax released the first in the Assassin's Creed Chronicles series in 2015, which happened to have very similar graphics and gameplay to those leaked screenshots. In 2004, Pirates of the Caribbean producer Jerry Bruckheimer acquired the film rights to the Prince of Persia franchise for Disney. Mechner had previously considered making an animated adaptation the series, but couldn't refuse Bruckheimer and Disney's offer. Mechner was also hired to write the story for the film, which was then adapted into a screenplay by other writers. Though the prince was unnamed in all of the games, Mechner gave him the name Dastan for the film. He came across the name in a passage in Ferdowsi's Shahnameh while researching for the script. The passage read, I have named you Dastan, the Trickster, and from now on you will be known by this name. Mechner liked this name so much that he decided to give the prince a name for the First time in 20 years. On the first day that Jordan Mechner met with Jake Gyllenhaal, the lead actor for the film adaptation, Gyllenhaal informed Mechner of another meaning of the name. In Persian, Dastin can also mean story, which Mechner felt was even more appropriate for the character and the narrative. Mechner was given an executive producer credit and got to fulfill his dream of working on a major motion picture. And while it received mixed reviews for a number of years, it was the most successful video game movie of all time bringing an estimated $335 million dollars until it was dethroned by the Angry Birds and Warcraft movies.
4: Did you know? The origins of Earthworm Jim come not from a game developer, but from a toy company. After their success with a Ninja Turtles deal, Playmates Toys wanted to create their own franchise to bank on. Unlike the Turtles who saw success in other fields prior to video games, Playmates wanted to start with games right off the bat, taking a page from titles like Sonic the Hedgehog. They got together with programmer David Perry, who had previously worked for Virgin Interactive, and lent Perry the money to fund Shiny Entertainment. Perry assembled a team made up of ex-Virgin members who wanted to to start with a license and later delve into original content. However, they didn't like any of the options Playmates offered them, having narrowly avoided a Beavis and Butthead game. The team decided to make an original IP and played around with a character called Snot, a blob of goo who could shapeshift. They did a few pencil test animations and seemed to be going ahead with that idea. At that time, the team had mentioned Doug Tenaple for the position of animator. Tenaple worked with Virgin before going to Shiny and is where he and Perry first met. The team liked Doug's work, but he had to prove he was shiny material, and was asked to make an alien creature with a walk cycle as part of his test. He presented a sketch of his Earthworm character, and upon seeing it, Perry and the team found their calling. They bought the rights to the character, and Tenaple got the job. Several other characters from his demo found their way into what would become Earthworm Jim, and shiny snot creature was repurposed as Jim's own pet. The design of Jim is in part due to hardware limitations. Many of Tenaple's drawings at the time had to be simple so characters were conveyed easily, and it offered more room for exaggeration. His human frame took inspiration from Warner Brothers characters like Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck and animating such anatomy posed a greater personal challenge. Tenaple did everything from brainstorming level ideas to voicing Jim himself, and the whole team took an active role pitching concepts for Jim's world. One feature that separated Jim from the competition was the game's brand of humor. The team held gag sessions, seeing what made them laugh and what they thought made fun gameplay. Anything that could be done was put in and it was was all made up as they went along. Tenable had said in an interview with Killscreen that, the key to Earthworm Jim was that we were cut loose to make our own game for the first time. We had all done multiple licensed games for everyone from Disney to 7-Up, so we were confined to a lot of content limitations. So we got to finally make our own thing, and I think Jim reflected the energy of the eight shiny guys at that period in our life. We listened to Monty Python CDs, loved They Might Be Giants, Beastie Boys, and Weird Al. So I think a lot of influences were trickling into our taste set the time. Given their creative freedom, Jim was also very much a satire of video game cliches. Princess What's Her Name was a mockery of how damsels in distress were overused in gaming. We also reached out to Tenable for further details and he explained that Jim's entire persona is a take on everything superheroes and testosterone. During his time at Virgin, Perry worked on titles like Cool Spot and Disney's Aladdin for the Genesis. Jim runs on the same engine as those games and followed the same animation process Aladdin did. The sprites were made by first drawing them on paper, scanning them onto the computer, then passing them through a compression tool, in a technique they called Animotion. Perry said the game's animation was technically more than a Genesis could store, but compression was the key to get it all in. Mike Dietz, who worked with Disney on the Aladdin game, served as Jim's animation director, and was invaluable with timing and working around the limitations of cartridges. This posed more of an issue when the team ported Jim to the Super Nintendo. Though the SNES had a larger color palette, it was more limiting in how many sprites could be on screen at a time, as well as how big they could get. One frame of character animation had several sprites to it, and some limitations also meant the sprites couldn't be stretched out as much. After working on the Genesis, they go back to the SNES version to shrink frames down or remove them completely, leaving the Genesis game with more fluid animation. Another area where SEGA won out was with the exclusive level Intestinal Distress. At the last minute, SEGA asked Shiny for an extra level to be put in their version in exchange for reduced cartridge costs. Art director Nick Broody took one of his earlier concepts and mapped out the level overnight. It was coded, tested, and out the door the next day, the very day it was to be printed on consoles. Broody also had a level named after him called Big Broody, exclusive to the Special Edition port. This port also has a cheat code that swaps out Jim head for Donkey Kongs with an arrow through it, allegedly taking a shot at Donkey Kong Country for upstaging Jim's initial release. While it's unknown if this was a direct reply, DKC2 featured Jim's ray gun by a trash can labeled No Hopers, along with Sonic's shoes. Since the release of Earthworm Jim 2, the franchise has tried making several comebacks, usually to little or no result. In 2003, a title was in the works for the PlayStation 2 and Xbox, but was shelved before the production stage. It reportedly had a structure akin to games like Klonoa, and level concepts ranged from Jim boat riding through heck in a musical sequence to a world made of cheese with a boss called Gorgonzola. During E3 2006, an Earthworm Jim game was announced for the PSP, though the IP's handheld rights were by Atari, the project was being led by Perry and had many original Shiny members on board, including Tenaple. Many review sites had played early builds of the game, but financial issues with Jim's publisher Interplay led to its cancellation in mid-2007. Shortly after, Interplay announced Earthworm Jim 4 in April 2008 and said Tenaple was on board as a creative consultant. It was also said to coincide with a new Earthworm Jim animated series and a feature length film, though nothing came out of this either. People said Interplay were interested in doing a game and doing it right, but it mainly boiled down to money troubles once again. In 2010, an HD remake of Earthworm Jim was put out by Gameloft. The game also featured the extended version of New Junk City found in the Special Edition but doesn't have the big Broody level from that same port, and is missing a level from the Genesis version. Although this version was well received, it had some shady practices behind it. An icon of Jim's head was taken from fan art by a DeviantArt user, and the artist found out upon buying the game on day one. In 2016, Interplay put its IPs up for sale, with one of them being Earthworm Jim. When asked about the series' future, Dave Perry still believes there'll be a new game, though it's more a matter of when that would happen, not if, and it would need the original team behind it. He also laments selling Jim's rights to Interplay in the first place, saying that it was a really dumb move on his part.
8: Did you know? The first Bubsy game was originally conceived as a licensed game based on the Cheetos mascot, Chester the Cheetah. But the developers decided to create their own character instead, so they wouldn't have to pay licensing fees. Bubsy was inspired by 1930s Max Fletcher cartoons and Sonic the Hedgehog. Bubsy's creator, Michael Berlin, wanted to break away from the story-based games and text adventure games that he was known for. After asking his producer to let him create a game like Sonic the Hedgehog, Berlin was rejected and told to go back to writing stories that's all that you know Berlin fought back, and his producer said he'd consider the idea if Berlin could write an analysis of what made Sonic the Hedgehog a great game. Berlin played Sonic for over 10 hours a day as research, and wrote an analysis that his producer accepted. In an interview with SEGA16, Berlin said, I was overwhelmed by the design and the way it took advantage of the Genesis's strengths. The heightened width of Sonic's levels was so brilliantly managed, the travelling through air leaps that Sonic made. Landed on the ground or a platform unharmed, was the springboard for Bubsy's Glide. The name Bubsy came from a made-up word Michael Berlin's family used to describe rounded, bouncy, happy things like Volkswagen Beetles. This is also the reason why some of the enemies in Bubsy are animated cars. A team of eight artists worked on Bubsy character designs for months, but they couldn't come up with anything that felt right. The lead art director then turned to a former classmate, Ken Macklin, who had a career drawing comic books with anthropomorphic animals, including some work for Disney. The first drawing by Macklin was exactly what they were looking for, and he was immediately hired. Bubsy was modeled after Bobcats, but the North American animal is lesser known in other parts of the world. In Japan, the game is called Yamaniko Bubsy no Daiboken, or The Adventure of Bubsy the Mountain Cat. Speaking of the Japanese release, the level select passwords in this version are unique. If the passwords are arranged in sequence, they make up the first 114 digits of pi. Bubsy was a huge multimedia project for the publisher Accolade. In fact, Founder Alan Miller put so much money behind Bubsy that he effectively gambled the entire company on the success of the game. To save money on the production of Genesis cartridges, Accolade reverse engineered Sega's cartridge copyright protection. Accolade did this to avoid Sega's official licensing channels. If Accolade had licensed with Sega, they'd be charged a $10 fee for each cartridge on top of publishing costs, and their games would have to release exclusively on Sega platforms. This would severely tax and reduce the income potential of the company. Accolade's copyright workaround led to a legal battle against Sega. Accolade were hurt early in the proceedings, as they had used a small amount of Sega's code to get past the copy protection. However, the judge ultimately ruled that Accolade's use of the code fell under fair use, for two main reasons. One, Accolade wrote the majority of their own code, and two, because Bubsy and Accolade's other Genesis games were multi-platform, meaning Accolade did not depend on Sega's system to sell their intellectual property. The legal victory led to a more favorable contract with Sega for future legitimate Accolade releases. The reason Bubsy is still talked about today is due to the enormous marketing effort behind the game. There was even a pilot episode for a TV show created in partnership with Taco Bell. Michael Berlin speculated that the angled Art style and southwestern setting of the cartoon were chosen because of the association with the sponsor. Berlin hated the pilot episode and told Bubsy fan blog that the Accolade developers were cringing while they watched it. The immense amount of marketing required to make Bubsy a success was part of the reason why Michael Berlin left Accolade after the release of the game. Berlin stated, I had some idea for other side scrollers and was developing new characters, but Accolade was not interested in pursuing them. I think they were more than a little shell shocked by the amount of of money they needed to spend to launch a product like Bubsy. Bubsy 2 was developed without the involvement of Berlin and almost killed the franchise. The staff that worked on the game notoriously hated Bubsy and did not care about quality. In an interview with Bubsy Fanblog, Berlin recalled walking into the Bubsy offices at Accolade one time and seeing Bubsy plush dolls hung from the ceiling like an execution. One of the developers even had a Bubsy doll with a pencil stabbed through its head. Yet another Bubsy game released after Berlin left. in Fractured Furry Tales, which was also disliked by its developers. Producer Farron Thomason said the voice clips and catchphrases were so irritating that the developers would repeat them sarcastically to annoy each other. Due to a sharp decline in sales and negative reception of the games, Accolade asked Michael Berlin to return and develop a new Bubsy game. He came back on the condition that the game would be a 3D platformer, even though no fully 3D platform games existed at that time. With no examples to follow. Accolade developers had to create the concept for Bubsy 3D from the ground up. Unbeknownst to them, Nintendo was doing the same thing with Mario in Japan. At the Consumer Electronics show, as Accolade presented a beta version of Bubsy 3D, Nintendo showed off Super Mario 64. Michael Berlin saw Nintendo's 3D platformer, and instantly knew that they were in serious trouble. Berlin wanted to start over from scratch, but the producers told him the company couldn't afford it. It was too late in the development cycle, and Accolade needed to release the game to recoup the development costs. The negative reaction to Bubsy 3D almost caused Michael Berlin to quit the games industry, but he took a few years off instead. The Bubsy series has a few surprising connections to other video games. Bubsy 3D directly led to the development of the PlayStation shooter Syphon Filter. Creative director John Garvin told IGN, The reason Sony came to us and gave us that project was because of Bubsy. Sony wanted the game to compete with Nintendo's GoldenEye 007, and asked Berlin's company, SIE Ben Studio, to create the game. This was because not only did the team have experience developing 3D games for the system, but they also had a working engine engine from Bubsy 3D. Michael Berlin went uncredited for his work on Syphon Filter by request. He felt certain aspects of the game were in poor taste, like the parts where the player shoots nuns and monks. Some of the same developers from Bubsy 3D and Syphon Filter also worked on the Uncharted games for the PlayStation Vita. Long before that, however, Michael Berlin helped Naughty Dog developers create their first game, Keef the Thief. Ironically, that team went on to create Crash Bandicoot, which helped seal Bubsy 3D's fate as a sub-par 3D platformer. Bubsy's clothing is the subject of some amusing facts as well. While the character design was still in development, Accolade's marketing department wanted Bubsy to wear pants. But Michael Berlin wanted a classic Donald Duck style character and was strictly opposed, telling them, not on your life. The exclamation mark on Bubsy's shirt was intended to change based on Bubsy's expression, but this idea was dropped because of time restraints and memory limitations. Instead, the colour of Bubsy's exclamation mark indicates which controller is being used. Red for player one and green for player two. In Fractured Furry Tales, which was built using the Bubsy One source code, Bubsy's shirt is yellow no matter what controller the player is using. This is actually a programming error. Yellow is a null value and was never supposed to be seen. Almost all Bubsy games contain hidden messages the developers left each other in the source code. Bubsy 3D contains the messages attempting load exec, it's failed five times so far. CD is hosed. We're dead in the water. And load failed. Clean the CD. One leftover comment in Fractured Fairy Tales states, "No smutty comments, please." Suggesting some inappropriate developer comments were deleted. The SNES port of Bubsy 1 contains a hidden credit to Basement Boys Software, a Commodore 64 hacking group from the mid 80s. Their involvement in the game is unknown, but some of its members were a part of Chip Level Designs, who created sound pro for a few Super Nintendo games. This same credit also appears in the game Cool Spot, also on the SNES. Some Bubsy games were planned to be ported to more consoles, but these ports were cancelled. Bubsy 3D was supposed to come out for the Sega 32X and the Sega Saturn, but were likely dropped due to poor sales of both the Sega systems and Bubsy 3D. Interestingly, Bubsy 3D also has no memory card support in the European release, and uses a password system instead. Bubsy 2 was going to be ported to the Sega Game Gear, and would be similar to the Game Boy port of the game. Evidence of the port was found many years later on a backup disc that belonged to an id Software employee, Dave Taylor. This came as a surprise to many, because unlike the Sega Saturn port of Bubsy 3D, the Game Gear port of Bubsy 2 was never officially announced. Did you also know there's an entire lost Pokedex that never left Japan, featuring exclusive information about Pokemon you can't find anywhere else? To see the entire Lost Pokedex, check out the video on screen. My buttons drop deep because I'm the goat. Always win and play, so grab your coat. Beyond these walls, life is find. I think of SNES in a gamer
1: state of mind.